0: So much rhythm, grace, and debonair for one man, one man. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to This
1: Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme minisodes where we pick apart various artist compilations song by song. I'm Amanda Rogers. Mike
2: DeFabio. Ben Marlin.
1: And just to let you guys know up front, Ben, you're having a little bit of trouble with your audio, right?
2: A little bit of trouble, but it should be fine.
1: It should be fine. You guys all love us enough to let that slide for this this once, right?
2: (laughs) Right, guys? Right? Of course you do. (laughs) Yeah.
1: If you don't, don't tell
2: us.
1: (laughs) All right, we are still working our way through Motown, the complete number ones. This episode, we're going to cover the last batch of Disc One. This is tracks 22 to 26. And we are starting this collection off with a bang with Stevie Wonder's Uptight, parentheses, everything's all right. was released in November of 1966 and topped the R&B charts for 5 weeks but only got to number 3 on the Hot 100 and the top spot that week was held by Petula Clark's My Love What the hell America <laughs> <laughs> My love is warmer than the warmest sunshine softer than a sigh.
2: my love is deeper than
1: the deepest ocean
0: wide She had more life. than one song apparently <laughs> Who knew
2: a bunch of Petula haters here. <laughs>
1: right, who is gonna put Petula Clark up against Stevie Wonder inside with Petula? Come on now. <laughs> Anyhow, he wasn't little Stevie Wonder anymore, but just barely. He was he was fifteen. Fifteen years old when he recorded this song, which I just realized a couple of weeks ago and then had to go lie down for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Up until this point, Motown had had trouble capturing his live energy in the studio setting. You probably noticed there's nothing between fingertips and this. Uh, But then songwriters Sylvia Moy and Henry Cosby helped him build this simple little ditty and do this just huge monster arrangement. And apparently the lyrics weren't ready for him in Braille in time for the recording session. So Sylvia Moy just very quietly sang the lines right ahead of him. And because Stevie Wonder is a genius, he just repeated them. in this wonderful, wonderful vocal performance that we just heard. How good is this song, you guys? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So good.
0: It's so good.
2: <laughs> there, there's so much to love here. I mean, it, it's an electric song. Uh, right away, Benny Benjamin's drumming is phenomenal. It, it coils up and then explodes into these super fast fills over and over for the whole length of the song. You've got this insistent bass riff and a joyful horn riff that interlock with each other and these guitars chanking like an intricate machine. And you've got – well, so he's not little Stevie Wonder. You're right. He's Teenage Stevie Wonder singing with the enthusiasm of youth but with the technique of a grizzled veteran who's tired like Amanda. He's so good. The lyrical hook is about a poor guy in love with a rich girl, and it's instantly relatable and human. But instead of being the sad sack, kind of like uh, the hit Down in the Boondocks by Billy Joe Royal, Stevie brims with confidence. He knows that he deserves this girl. He's DJ Jazzy Jeff walking into the Banks's Bel Air mansion like he owns the place. <laughs> Except he's less clueless and he's not going to get tossed out by Uncle Phil. You know the whole family loves Stevie.
1: Lord have mercy on a boy from down in the boondocks. <laughs>
2: I love that song. <laughs> oh, it's a great song, but it, this is yeah. this is just a different take on the absolutely the poor guy, rich girl thing.
1: Yeah,
0: the exuberance in this song is just incredible, mm-hmm. and I, I have to wonder if uh, if the Beatles had this in mind when they were recording "Got to Get You Into My Life." Ooh, because oh. the, the horns, the the big blaring horns, just mm-hmm. scream out at you, and I, I. In much the same way the horns on that song do, and I I wonder if they were thinking we have if they heard this record and they thought we have to do a song like that. But now I'm seeing it was released November 1966, and I thought it came out a little earlier than that. Mm. So, so probably not. Maybe it was the other uh, way around. (laughs) 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 It's but it's it it there's a similar energy going on there definitely, and uh, I I've always thought this song was interesting because he he uses the word uptight. In a positive sense, yeah, mm-hmm. which you never hear. It's it's that's usually a, a, a very uh, has a lot of negative connotations, but here it means yeah, it's um,
2: yeah, it's uptight. Everything's all right. Yeah, it, I thought this uh, song would be about me, but it wasn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's more negative now, but was it then? I mean, was that I the current know. slang then? I don't know.
0: Yeah, because yeah, I haven't heard any other songs that use it that way.
1: I so, feel like so I, I have, know, but, but I can't think. I can't put my finger on it now. So yeah. that means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the vocal performance on this song just blows me away. And wouldn't his voice have like just finished changing at that point?
2: Yes.
0: And had
1: already yeah, just settled had. into-
2: Stevie Wonder.
1: Stevie Wonder. Yeah. (laughs) He was already Stevie Wonder.
0: And they were wondering if he was like going to still be commercially viable. Yeah. Because he wasn't little Stevie Wonder anymore. And instead he came out with this. And
1: as far as I understand, it is fairly unusual for somebody to still be a really amazing singer after their voice changes, you know, as good as they were beforehand.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So but this yeah,
1: I'm I'm not an expert in that department but
2: <laughs> <laughs> as I, as I said in in the Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life episode, it, it took a lot of foresight for Barry Gordy to keep Stevie around yeah. after he stopped yeah. having hits. But he also probably wasn't paying him that much, so I don't I don't know how <laughs> right. much of a risk it was.
1: Right.
0: But yeah, this just more proof that he lives up to his name. Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. And I I'm usually not Stevie. a real big fan of the of that giant blaring trumpet sound it's one of the reasons (laughs) Ben's going to be mad at me it's one of the reasons I don't like 70s Elvis because he really really Uh, overdid that giant blaring trumpet
0: sound (laughs) he he did but it's (laughs) we're we're getting a strange grinding sound on the recording
1: Ben is that your audio messing up again (laughs) (laughs) but then you'll have like you know this and got to get you into my life and keep the customer satisfied by simon and garfunkel so every now and again that sound really really really
0: works yeah yeah when you when it's used correctly it just blasts a song into the stratosphere
1: yeah the way it's supposed to instead of just being obnoxious (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right is that is that it for uptight are we ready are we ready
2: We better be. All right. Get ready. (laughs)
1: Well, the Temptations want us to get ready. Rhyme, but I love
2: it. (laughs) Yeah, that was like that was a low point for Smokey there on a great song. (laughs) I can see Barry Gordy saying, You get one of these.
1: Yeah. Step up your game. We all know you're better than this. (laughs) All right. That little number was released in February 1966. Only got to number 29 on the Hot 100, but it topped the R&B charts. This was the final Temptations song written by Smokey Robinson because by this point there was a lot of competition to write for those guys. And when this underperformed on the Hot 100, it was only number 29. Oh my goodness, what a (laughs) disgrace. Uh, Barry Gordy (laughs) turned over songwriting duties to Norman Whitfield, who we will hear from on the next disc. Now, I didn't do the research for these songs. Rich wrote down all these notes for me and very thoughtfully included the tidbit that there's a 21-minute cover of the song by Rare Earth uh, that was used in the Friends episode, the one with all the cheesecakes.
2: Like over the whole episode? <laughs> I could have been. <laughs> I think I'd remember that.
1: You would think. No, one of the subplots in that episode, that was when Monica didn't get invited to her cousin Franny's wedding, but Ross was. So she makes him take her as his oh. plus one and wears a white lace dress to somebody else's wedding.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then it turned out she had previously known the groom.
1: Yeah, she had slept with the groom before. It turns out that's why she wasn't invited. But anyhow, the rare earth song is playing during the reception <laughs> when all
2: this goes on. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, my primary memory of the song is actually that I played it in my high school pep band. We sat in the bleachers and played at basketball games because I grew up in Indiana and basketball is a real big deal there.
2: <laughs>
1: and we played mostly pop songs. There's a lot of Motown stuff, a lot of Beach Boys songs. And this one, was it was just a really fun arrangement. I, I had a great time doing that.
2: Sounds like it would be.
1: Yeah. We, oh, we had fun. a lot so much of fun. horns
2: in the song. Mm-hmm lot of horns barry gordy is just cutthroat like who hears get ready and decides we better fire that songwriter (laughs) (laughs) um it's an interesting placement next to uptight because i hear a rhythmic similarity between them something about like the, the big drum rolls and like just the the crescendos coming like like lapping up like waves on the beach um It's the heavy drums that set Motown apart from other 60s pop, as I've said in another one of these episodes. Nothing else sounded like that. Supposedly, according to Wikipedia, these drums are by Benny Benjamin, who's one of the all-time greats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that I'm biased there. Uh, But (laughs) I actually hear Uriel Jones and the heavier assault on the snare drum, like a Mack truck careening down the highway. But I don't know for sure. Uh, I'm impressed that you
1: can distinguish between the drummers that well. I think
2: I can distinguish between the <laughs> drummers that well. Um, the rhythmic horns and the strings integrate so well into the arrangement. The strings are sweet and they're energetic. And there's also even this little foreboding moment just before the bridge. Uh, Mike, what is that? Like just where it gets like, like nervous, these nervous high strings. Well, what's the effect there? Do you know?
0: Ah. You know, off the top of my head, I can't tell you. I bet after this episode, I'm going to hear it. And like, that's what that's what that is. call okay. called that.
2: <laughs> um, Eddie Kendricks sings the song beautifully, um, but also forcefully, and he's doubled in some parts by Melvin Franklin, the bass singer for the Temptations. I wouldn't have known that Eddie Kendricks had this in him. You know, he could sing these beautiful ballads and pop songs, but this this one's just powerful, and the group harmonies on the chorus are so great. Uh, the songs just so good i know people don't need to listen to a podcast to, to hear that level of musical insight but <laughs> it's just so good my point is anyone can make a podcast
1: <laughs> that is the kind of incisive musical analysis that people tune into discord and rhyme for
2: <laughs> it is <laughs> it's so good <laughs> this is
0: i i love when you can hear when you when you hear a song and you can pinpoint the exact moment when a group got awesome yeah. Because the Temptations, I mean, the songs we've heard by them so far, they're good songs. I don't ever need to hear My Girl ever again in my life. <laughs> but this song, they, they just bumped it up to another level. And uh, uh, Smokey Robinson, I mean, he, he might not have been at the top of his lyrical game <laughs> with uh, lines like, Fee-fi-fo-fum, look out, baby, because here I come. <laughs> but uh, he, everything else, I mean, he wrote the song and produced it. And... He was just killing it in in both departments because I mean it's one of the the best it's one of the best Motown songs ever not just by the Temptations but just ever by the label mm-hmm. yeah. and the production is just enormous it sounds like the Temptations and an entire orchestra are just crashing into your house it's, <laughs> it's just so propulsive it's it's just massive sounding yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's it's been covered a bunch of times. I was listening to a bunch of uh just different covers released by artists on the Motown roster. The Supremes did it. Uh Smokey Robinson and the Miracles did their own version that set it uh, incorporates little bits of sunshine of your love. Wow. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um it, nobody ever topped this one. Rare Earth didn't top it. Mm-mm. It's just this gem of a production and it's production and songwriting and just group coming together to make something perfect that really had no business being as low on the charts as it was. Mm-hmm. Like why is why was this not just a number one in its own right? I don't know.
2: A few yeah. dozen but songs so by great. Petula Clark, probably. Yeah, I bet the top <laughs> yeah. twenty-eight songs
1: were all Petula Clark. <laughs> <laughs> the,
2: now that you mentioned Sunshine of Your Love, I'm I'm hearing the two songs and it's is it possible Smokey was saying, Hey, that's our riff? from this song (laughs) at least the first few notes
1: yeah I'm I'm thinking of Sunshine of Your Love and I think the bass lines are pretty similar Yeah, Uh, so you could mash those up pretty well I really want to hear that now anyhow you know what everybody did when they heard Get Ready they went (laughs) out dancing in the street with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas Back in our first Motown episode when Phil told us that the methodology for this collection was that if even a cover or a fragment of a song hit number one in some version anywhere in the world, it got included on this collection. And the rest of this disc is kind of... Sliding in on various technicalities. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This one came out in July 1964, and this version did not hit the top of any charts, which is kind of surprising. Uh, It did get to number two on the Hot 100, though, because Petula Clark must have put out a single that week. (laughs) This uh, version is here because the 1985 cover by Mick Jagger and David Bowie topped the charts... Uh, Basically on the entire planet uh, Including the UK, Australia, Spain, the Netherlands, Ireland, Finland And the European Hot 100 Because I guess there was a Hot 100 for all of Europe Which is something I just learned right this second I did not know (laughs) So this song was written by Marvin Gaye, Ivy Joe Hunter, and William Mickey Stevenson. How do you get Mickey out of William? (laughs) That's another thing I just learned right this second. This is what happens when you don't do your own research.
2: (laughs) Maybe he had really big ears.
1: (laughs) That must be it. Uh, The song was inspired uh, by seeing people dancing in front of open fire hydrants during heat waves in Detroit, which honestly sounds really fun. Uh, very quickly became an anthem for the civil rights movement because of all the cities mentioned in the song. They have very significant African-American populations, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, New Orleans, New York, Philadelphia, and even led to some radio stations removing the song from their playlists. I wonder if that's why I didn't get to number one. Uh, anyhow, Dancing in the Street turned out to be such an important song that there's an entire book about it by Mark Kurlansky. It's called Ready for a Brand New Beat. Uh, none of us knew this until today, so we did not <laughs> read it, <laughs> but it does sound really interesting. And Rich found a good New Yorker article about it from 2013 that we will put on our Twitter at Discord Pod, so keep your eye out for that. What do you guys think?
0: Uh, my well, my first observation about this song is that earlier this year, in the space of about a month, I bought two Grateful Dead live albums, uh, Dick's Picks Volume 4 and... Uh, cornell 1977 and also a, a box set of the first uh six van halen albums which meant that uh And I didn't realize this until after I bought all of those, that the number of covers of Dancing in the Street in my collection went from zero to three. (laughs) (laughs) And I I still don't own the original Martha Reeves and the Vandellas version. (laughs) And I like all those versions a lot. I I think, uh, in particular, I think Van Halen's version is a lot of fun. But obviously nothing's going to top the original. The word exuberance is is just kind of falling out of me today. But it's got an (laughs) exuberance that, that none of the others have. Certainly certainly not the ridiculous Mick Jagger and David Bowie version <laughs> that that's it's so funny to me that this is on there because of their version because it's but that song exists now for people to laugh at yeah just yeah the, the people watch that video and go what oh geez what were you guys thinking yeah.
1: and it's all yeah. just like really dorky swagger
0: yeah yeah <laughs> dorky 1985
2: swagger
1: yeah, and the Mamas and the Papas did this too, I think. I'm pretty sure I own oh, that really? somewhere. Which, yeah.
2: Which can't be that exciting.
1: It's not. I mean, yeah. Like they had their niche
2: <laughs> for sure, but it's not something like this.
1: No, they also covered My Girl badly. Oh. Yeah.
0: Everybody had to cover My Girl they, badly. Well it was the rule. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. No, this this record is so good that we still like it even after Mick Jagger and David Bowie. <laughs> um, it's true. You can't kill it. And and to be fair, I mean, I, I it's fun to pick on that song. And maybe that's because it is uh, – you cannot separate it from the video, which is just so oh, yeah. campy and terrible. Mm-hmm. But if you just hear it on the radio, it, it pops with excitement. I think it's Stock Aikman-Waterman. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the British producers who did – Our house by madness, and so they knew how to make a song jump out of your speakers. It's never going to give you up. And Mick Jagger and David Bowie, they're pros. They know what they're doing. But it again, it's hard not to picture that video and just laugh at it. But this original, uh, it's a gigantic song. Uh, It's one of those kind of like Mike says about my girl, and as Phil said in another episode about a lot of these songs, it's it's like air. It's something that's always been there. It's hard to have an opinion about. Uh, but if, if you listen kind of with fresh ears, it's got that huge beat. It's different from yeah. any other Motown drum beat. It, it's focusing on that one colossal slam on the three in every bar. Um, Wikipedia says it's a tire iron, which I had never heard of, oh, but yeah. that makes it's, sense. I
0: saw that it's a
2: tire combined with the uh the snow chains
0: in yeah. Nowhere to run i'm going to i'm going to go ahead and call uh, martha reeves and the vandellas the uh, the einstresen and of motown <laughs> for their their use of of just slamming metal objects together so yeah. did martha percussion? reeves
1: just go rummaging in her car before every <laughs> <laughs> recording i <success>. guess <laughs> See, what cool stuff do i have in here today <laughs> <laughs>
2: And you got that that ferociously slapped tambourine, which we're going to hear tambourine in the next song that I don't think is that good. But in this case, uh, I just think it, it's fantastic. And it was likely Jack Ashford, who was a crack percussionist at, at Motown. Um, and there's also an indelible horn riff to start off the song, because why not? The song is a classic. Uh, The lower end is less well-recorded than you usually find at Motown. Marvin Gaye is playing drums, but you can't hear him that well underneath the tire iron. And the bass (laughs) line is a little nebulous. So that doesn't make for a successful business plan, but just this once, it works because the focus belongs at the top of the mix with Martha Reeves. Mm -hmm, She's big and authoritative enough to carry the song and to not be swallowed up by the rest of the instrumentation, which is no easy feat. and She's just fantastic here. Yeah, she kills it on this song.
0: I, I have to wonder. Uh, I, I just you you put this this image of my mind of some like Christopher Walken esque producer, you know, s- standing in the studio <laughs> going, "I need more tire iron." <laughs> <laughs> that's was, great. Was Barry Gordy filling that role? I don't know. <laughs>
1: oh, that's great. I almost don't want to say this. I know all the reasons why I should like this song because you guys all just said them really well, but I never really have. Mm. And that's... and I'm not even totally sure why. I think part of it is that for whatever reason, I really couldn't tell you why. Martha Reeves' voice has just never really appealed to me. And mm. this arrangement, I feel like, even though it's not quite as in-your-face as uptight, it just it feels like too much to me. It feels like... They just threw too many things in there. Like, maybe we could have done without the tire iron. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I just I cannot justify this opinion. It doesn't even really make sense to me, but I've never really cared for dancing
0: in the street. That's all right. I mean, that's an opinion. uh, It's I think that's easy to have. Well, it's easy for me to have if I'm not currently listening to it. Yeah. If I'm listening to it, I'm like, "Oh yeah, this this song actually is that great." But like the the concept of dancing in the street never excites me all that much. Not not like a song like like Heat Wave or nowhere nowhere to run or something mm-hmm. like that. I it's I, I think it's part,
2: part part of that is that it's just always been there. Yeah. yeah. It's the melody is catchy, but it's not as fully formed as as like Mike is saying some of the other Vandellas hits or like a lot of Motown songs.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, and even Heat Wave, Heat Wave has <laughs> oh, maybe whoa. my favorite intro in all of the Motown catalog. It is absolutely spectacular. But as soon as Martha starts singing, then I'm like, meh, and I skip to the next song, <laughs> <laughs> which I get. It just, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's just, that's just where I'm at.
2: <laughs> Sorry, that was my tears falling on the microphone there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm here to traumatize Ben tonight, apparently.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You said, what about Elvis?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've got so much more I could say about Elvis.
0: I don't believe in Elvis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we do believe in Marvin Gaye, who is coming up next with his song, How Sweet It Is, parentheses, To Be Loved By You.
0: How sweet it is. Someone's on
1: was released in november 1964 also failed to top the charts Uh, it got to number six on the hot 100 number three on the r&b and this is here because james taylor's cover in 1975 topped the u.s adult contemporary charts Uh, this is another Holland Dozier Holland composition. The title was inspired by Jackie Gleason's catchphrase, How Sweet It Is, from The Jackie Gleason Show.
0: Mm.
1: And again, I didn't do my own research here, and Rich added a note that says, A show we can now watch while we eat, which I don't get.
0: Oh, it's Back to the Future. Oh, yeah! Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> okay. All right.
0: So- What's a rerun? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, Lamont Dozier said about the lyric, he was sitting at the piano fantasizing about how good it would be if the woman I had eyes for was madly in love with me, but the truth is she never gave me a second look, so I created this fantasy world where I was the object of all of her affections, that sounds healthy, a bit of fiction <laughs> that eventually came true due to my persistence and showering her with affection. Ooh. Ah, mm, okay. All right, well, it.
0: So,
2: there's a lesson for you guys.
0: <laughs> Glad that
1: worked for you, Lamont, but it is not a technique I recommend.
2: Overdo it. <laughs> don't give her any breathing room.
1: Right. And then I wondered is this the same girlfriend that got cheated on and inspired Stop in the Name of Love? <laughs> I really don't know.
0: She should really demand some monetary compensation for some of these <laughs> songs.
1: Really. Man alive. So, yeah, I knew the James Taylor version long before I even knew that was a cover, let alone had heard this. And to be honest with you, I still kind of like that one better. You know, it's a good song. And of course, this is a good recording of it. And you cannot ever beat Marvin Gaye's singing. Well, usually. Uh, (laughs) But I kind of feel like James polished it up a little. And there's there's a few bits of this arrangement that sound kind of awkward. And he just, I don't know, I feel like he tidied it up and made it sound like a bit more of a finished product.
0: Yeah, I I also knew the the James Taylor version first because my mom has always liked James Taylor a lot and yeah, listened too. to uh, <laughs> yeah yeah she had uh, his greatest hits in the car a lot. Mine and too. Would fast, <laughs> and would fast forward past a steamroller to protect my freaking ears.
1: Oh, my mom didn't care about that.
2: <laughs> I guess a lot of this uh, podcast, a lot of us co-hosts are here because of James Taylor.
1: Noted lady killer James Taylor. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Dastardly
2: villain from our Joni Mitchell episode. Yeah. Listen to Joni Mitchell. Listen to the Joni Mitchell episode if you want to learn more than you ever wanted to know about James
1: Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Or just listen to Blue. There's a lot of information about him there too. Yeah.
0: It's true. Anyhow. (laughs) Sorry, Mike. Oh, but yeah, yeah. I was I was familiar with this. Yeah, long before I ever heard the Marvin Gaye version. I think this is a, an interesting example of uh, where uh, my tastes and I uh, and Amanda's diverge because I think this song is just a little. The, the, the James Taylor's version of this song is just a little too California mellow for me. Mm. And I and I'm like the representative Californian on the podcast, but. Uh, <laughs> what do you <laughs> And I, I have to wonder what, when did the adult contemporary charts start? Hmm. Like, I, I am, I'm wondering if if it was started like for James Taylor. I was just
1: thinking that maybe he invented it.
0: <laughs> he, he might have. Yeah. I w- I want to know like what the, what the first adult contemporary hit record was.
1: I I kind of love how you're talking about our tastes diverging as if that is in any way unusual. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of, a lot of times they don't though. It's true. It's true. We have a surprising
0: amount of overlap. Yeah. Fewer banjos in my collection, but. <laughs> Much less noise in mine. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But yeah, Marvin Gaye's version, it's not my favorite Marvin Gaye song. It's a little, you know, it's 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 kind of lightweight compared to some of these, you mm-hmm. know, big heavy Motown songs, but I like it. It's it's fine. It's better than another Marvin Gaye song we're going to talk about a little later. That is
2: the truth. That's the monster at the end of this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't go on to the next song. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is perfectly lovable pop music. I don't think until this episode, I don't think I thought of how little I thought of this song until now because it's another one of those. It's just it's been around with all these other songs kind of in the same place. And so I figured, oh, it must be just as good. But it's really not. It's not as gritty and substantive as, as the best Motown songs. They drown out the drums with hand claps and, and goopy tambourine slinking. Marvin Gaye <laughs> sings in a lovely, genteel tenor voice. Uh, he's probably wearing a nice suit in the studio and good for him. But he went on to become a much more distinct uh, and, and great vocalist. This guy on the record was likable enough, but he wouldn't have gone on to much of a career. People talk about Motown neutering soul music to appeal to a white audience. Usually, I don't hear that at all. It's crazy. It's bunk. It's hooey. People who say it are full of shit. But here, I do hear a little of it. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad Motown didn't settle on this style of music.
1: All right. Well, clearly, we're all crazy about that one. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. The next song is The Isley Brothers with this old heart of mine, parentheses, is weak for you. Just so many parentheses in this batch. And I have to say all of them are ritual yell at me later. <laughs>
2: or the brothers Isley, as I don't believe they've ever actually been known, are a musical family from Cincinnati, Ohio. They formed in 1954, but they began having success in the late 1950s after they moved to New York City, and they hit it big with their R&B dance anthem Shout, which is still a bar mitzvah standard today. The core lineup in the 1960s consisted of lead singer Ron Isley and his brothers Rudolph and O'Kelly. In 1965, they signed with Motown. They had one monster hit the next year with this song, This Old Heart of Mine, parentheses, is weak for you, close parentheses, uh, which is written by Holland Dozier Holland and Sylvia Moy. Despite the song hitting number 12 on the charts and being one of the best Motown songs ever, the Isleys never came close to equaling that success at the label, and they left in 1968, mostly a footnote to the label's success. Finally, in 2006, Ronald Isley went to jail for three years for failing to pay $3 million in taxes. What, really? Well, um, and be- before that, the uh, the three brothers were joined by two younger brothers and an in-law and had an incredible run of funk hits in the late 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s. That's important, too. And I guess Ron had to incur that tax debt somehow. I mean, I could only hope to one day owe the government $3 million. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, This Old Heart of Mine was released January 1966. Uh, As Ben said, it only hit number 12 on the Hot 100, number 6 on the R&B charts. It's on this comp because of our old buddy Rod Stewart, who (laughs) covered the song twice, once in 1975 as a solo release and then again in 1989 as a duet with Ronald Isley, where it topped, again, the adult contemporary charts in both the U.S. and Canada.
2: They can, they can, I, yes. I don't think I've ever heard this. They can both no. sing. I'll give them that. I, it, I don't think I like the production much. But So the Isley Brothers version of this is one of my favorite Motown songs. That doesn't even have a ton to do with the Isley Brothers. And don't get me wrong, they're amazing. And they were amazing for a long time. From the 1950s right up until the point when Ronald Isley hooked up with R. Kelly and decided that he was a pimp. Um, <laughs> but Ron sings the hell out of this song. If things had gone differently, he could have been one of the great Motown vocalists, up with almost all of them. Um, That said, this old heart of mine, it was going to be a Motown classic no matter who sang it, I think. It's peak Holland, Dozier Holland, and I guess uh, peak Sylvia Moy, too. The song flies along like a roller coaster. It's got an infectious melody, a propulsive string arrangement, and just incredible dynamics. That piano riff, which they double on vibes, is just mind-blowing. It's up there with the best Four Tops tracks, and it's even sleeker and less heavy in a good way. It's one of those songs that's easy to take for granted because it's been in our consciousness for five decades, but don't take it for granted. It's one of the best songs ever.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I first knew this song from that 1989 cover and did not know for years that It was a cover, (laughs) Um, and I still, after all this time, and I've heard this version any number of times by now, but I still know that Rod Stewart version better, (laughs) which is, I don't know, maybe that's a little embarrassing, but that's the one that was on the radio when I was a kid. That was the one I heard all the time, so, you know. Right.
2: I grew up on oldies radio, so I was more likely to hear the Isley Brothers version than whatever was big at the time.
1: Yeah, well, and see, that's the thing. I was listening to oldies radio all the time, too, but I just don't think this got played much on my particular station out of Chicago. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't hear it a lot either, and I I heard plenty of oldies radio. Mm -hmm. But this is – I'm really surprised that this song charted as low as it did. Mm -hmm. It's another one of the best songs Motown ever put out. I kind of wonder if they they just didn't know what to do with the Isley Brothers. Maybe they just weren't a fit somehow, because this song is sure great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. didn't really put out a whole lot else. That's uh, it's a mystery because this this one sure turned out great. It's just it's another just steamroller of a song. It just plows right over you. Yeah. Uh, I I love how uh, that riff in the beginning doesn't go away when they start singing. It just continues yeah. throughout the song pretty much. Because if they knew they had like a killer hook there, they didn't want to take it away. Mm-hmm. It's. Yeah, like Ben said, it's easy to take for granted. You should not do that. It's this old heart of mine. I don't I don't have a lot of yeah. deep analysis of it, but it's uh, it's uh if if you don't want to get up and do something while it's playing, uh I I don't know <laughs> what to do.
1: <laughs> this is a really really fantastic song and I think I like it even better for not having heard it all the time. As a yeah. kid, I've never had a chance to get tired of it. And it is quite different from the other Isley Brothers songs that I know. In fact, I don't think I knew this was them for quite a mm. long time, even after I'd heard this version. And, you know, you mentioned the Four Tops. I think they would have done a really good job with this one, honestly. Yeah. But but yeah, this recording is really great. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if it just, if Motown just wasn't the right label for them just because this is so different from their other stuff. But yeah. they sure knocked this one out of the park.
2: yeah. And to piggyback on what Mike said about Motown not knowing what to do with the Isley brothers, part of that could be in the album cover. Uh, the album was also called This Old Heart of Mine, and I have the cover in front of me. And it's a picture of a white couple on a beach staring at each <laughs> other over a beach ball, and there's little hearts around them. So I don't even know what's yeah, Who would want to buy that? Yeah. So they, they, they just didn't know what they were doing here.
1: Well, that's what Rod Stewart saw and thought. Hey, I should do that song.
0: <laughs> Master of Soul, Rod Stewart. Yep.
1: <laughs> All right, I think
0: we've—it's—it's
1: it's unavoidable, you guys. We have to talk about the last song on this disc, which is mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye singing, "Wherever I Lay My Hat (Parentheses), That's My Home."
2: <laughs> tears, for I'm not worth it, you see. Oh, I'm the kind of guy who is always on the road, wherever I lay my hat, that's my home. Yeah,
1: yeah. This, okay, the methodology of... You know, deciding uh, what songs were going to go on this number one's compilation got very convoluted and strange, and I think this is the most convoluted and strange example of that on the compilation. The song was recorded in December 1962, but it wasn't released until 1969 when it showed up as the B-side to Too Busy Thinking About My Baby, which is an excellent song. Yeah. That one got to number one on the R&B charts, and it shows up later in this compilation, not till disc three. This song is here because English singer-songwriter Paul Young covered it in 1983, and it topped the charts in the UK for three weeks.
0: (sighs) It's even worse.
2: Wasn't he on Do They Know It's Christmas? Oh, Oh, I think he
1: was, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, this this song was written by Marvin Gaye with Barrett Strong and Norman Whitfield, and really the only notable thing about it is that it was covered by Paul Young, who made it worse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Nothing about this makes any sense to me. It's out of order chronologically, both by recording date and release date, and that extremely generous methodology is really working against him here because you know what you guys, the song sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. Like musically it is it's actively annoying. Whatever those <laughs> horns are doing, it's way too busy and nervous and Yeah. I do not care for it. And then from a lyrical standpoint, holy cow like <laughs> he's like, okay, I can see that you're gonna cry, but that's gonna just really mess up my day. So I'm I'm just going to stop you right there and tell you all the reasons why really this is your fault for liking me in the first place. Because <laughs> I am a rotten, no good scoundrel. Oh, I hate this song so much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't predict that level of emotion, but that's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I always just kind of thought, wow, this this is really not that good. And I just skipped it. And then it was just this week I listened to it more closely and realized just the level of badness that it hits. And. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Come on, Marvin. You're better than this.
2: <laughs> I think it's a case of mistaken identity, like like a barcode number got transposed or something and this happened. <laughs> I think even the song itself would probably say, yeah, I don't belong here. This was clearly a mistake. I'm not even offended. I'm, I'm fine with who I am. Uh, And meanwhile, somewhere else, some amazing track, like kind of like I heard it through the grapevine, is consigned to a dusty B-side. It's never been released on CD. It's never been on the radio. And it's crying out that it's not supposed to be there. And there's been a big mistake. Doesn't anybody realize what happened? (laughs) But it's buried at the bottom of the bin of records and nobody hears it and nobody cares. (laughs) <laughs> and eventually the two songs meet and they team up to help their estranged parents fall back in love with one another or something like that. I may have lost the narrative here.
0: As, as for
2: the song itself, I guess I don't hate it as much as Amanda does. It's just, it's nothing. It, it, yeah. It's just nothing. Everyone involved has done better work. And you're right about the horn riffs too. They're, they're annoying. I guess Motown was just being thorough with this box set, but maybe they should have gone with the title- most Motown number one hits. (laughs) Subtitle, you're just going to have to trust us here. I'd still buy it.
1: You know, I wonder if they made that rule just so they could get like Dancing in the Streets on here because it would be really weird to have any kind of Motown compilation that didn't include Dancing in the Streets. So they had to bend the rules. And then once they bent the rules for that one, they'd have to, (laughs) you know, you can't just make (laughs) an exception for one song. You have to (laughs) let this one in too.
0: But they couldn't bend the rules enough for nowhere to run. Yeah, I, right. There had to be. But, they, but this one made it on. <laughs> you know what this song sounds like to me? It's like Diet Sam Cook.
2: Oh. Yeah, it's like, That's good. It's
0: like if you took a Cam- a Sam Cook song and just let's let's make it not good. <laughs> <laughs> it's there's just I I I also don't. Hate it with quite the uh, the rancor that Amanda has for it, but <laughs> I, I don't like it at all. It's too early in in Marvin Gaye's career to, mm-hmm. but it's but it's before he really got good and uh, hadn't really. I don't think he had really found his sound yet. So it's just kind of it's just kind of bland. It, there's yeah. just nothing there, and it's it's certainly you know it's it's certainly got nothing on uh, wherever I lay my phone. That's my home by the Super Furry Animals. Oh. I don't know that one. I don't either. I'll take your word for it though. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean if we're if we're going to, you know, get uh, some obscure Marvin Gaye track onto the compilation on a technicality, couldn't they have found some kind of a way to get something like for instance, uh, Baby Don't You Do It, <laughs> which uh which I don't think was a hit at all. It's not on any of his best ofs. For for a long time I only knew it by the who because it's a bonus track on the version of Who's Next I have, but it's a great <laughs> song. They could have found some kind of a reason to include it. Mm. Yeah.
1: It was covered by a band who had other number 1 hits.
0: Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, but instead we have to we we have to deal with this very very anticlimactic ending yeah. to the first disc of this compilation.
1: Yeah. And you know it, they could have left it off because it didn't chart in the US. It only charted in the UK and who cares about them?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think what, when they decided to bend the rules to allow in dancing in the street, you know, some old janitor like opened his mouth, he's like, Don't do that, because then you're gonna have to include and they're like, Quiet, quiet, we got a great idea here.
0: <laughs> but yeah, not that good.
1: No, really not. The rest of them are though. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay, that does it for the first disc of the Motown Complete number ones, and we do mean complete, as we said before. Um, We are not doing all ten discs of this right in a row, as we mentioned earlier in the series. Uh, we're going to take a week off in between discs. And next time you hear uh, one of our bonus episodes, it's going to be disc one of our next compilation, which is Nevermind the Mainstream, the best of MTV's 120 Minutes, which was a program that helped get a lot of 80s and early 90s alternative music into people's ears, uh, especially Will's, because he chose the comp.
0: What do you call this record? With all these songs, this is comp. Yeah yeah this is comp Yeah yeah this is comp Yeah yeah this is
1: Thanks for listening to this is comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. The opening theme music for this series is the Motown song by Rod Stewart featuring the Temptations and the closing music you're hearing right now is performed by Kenneth Crayley featuring original music by Andy Partridge of XTC with new lyrics by Adam Smith of the Hector Collectors. You can hear Kenneth's music at Kenneth com and his band Casinos at casinos.bandcamp.com. We will be back with our next comp series in a few weeks, so tune in for our main episodes in the meantime and be ever wonderful.